You are listening to the Center for Urban Research Teaching and Outreach's Curto Conversations podcast. In each episode, campus and community experts will highlight collaborations that contribute to the advancement of the human community. Marquette University is located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the traditional lands of Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, and Menominee peoples along the southwest shores of Michigami, North America's largest system of freshwater lakes where the Milwaukee, Menominee, and Kinnikinnik rivers meet and the people of Wisconsin, Sovereign, Anishi, Nave, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Anita, and Mohican nations remain present. Welcome back to this episode of Curdo Conversations. This week, I am joined by another two PhD students here at Marquette University who have just recently started working with us at Curdo, Veronica Mancheno and Saul Lopez. I would like to welcome you both to the podcast and thank you for taking the time to join me on this Friday morning. And I will throw it first to you, Veronica, for your, to tell us who you are. Uh, thank you, Ben. So, as you said, my name is Veronica Mancheno. I am 44 years old. I was born and raised in Ecuador, South America, and I came to the United States in 1996. Uh, so, since then to now, I have raised two children, one of who is, he's a freshman at UW-Madison, Alejandro. He's 18, and then I have a junior student in Rufus King High School in Milwaukee Public Schools. Uh, so they are, of course, a part of my life and the, my biggest source of joy and renewed strength. My, the rest of my, fam- my immediate family is in Ecuador. So my parents and my siblings and my nephews and nieces, and then I have other siblings in Italy. So my family is a bit spread out throughout the world. Yeah, wow, that sounds like it, Italy and Ecuador. Uh, I've never been to Ecuador. I've been to Italy, but it's on my list. I want to get down there someday. Now you have where to go. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> so, hey, how's it going? Thanks, Ben, for having having me and Veronica. I am a Milwaukee native, born and raised in Milwaukee. Um, I am 24. No, 23. Going to 24 next month. I studied at Marquette for my undergrad and my master's. So I studied English and Spanish literature. And then I transitioned to education last year while I was working in the Office of Institutional Diversity and Inclusion. So, yeah, I mean, I've been in Milwaukee my whole life. I went to a market high and then market U. So I've been kind of through the Marquette pipeline, you can call it that. But, yeah, super excited to be here. Awesome. Well, thank you also for taking the time. I have found, and I don't guess it's that strange, but... uh, uh, as somebody who has only been living in Milwaukee for about, mm, I guess, six years now, because I also did my master's here at Marquette, uh, and that's what I moved up here in, before transitioning into the PhD program, that there are a lot of people who are lifers, who have been here their entire life and gone through the process, and people really love the city, so... And some people love the university. Now, it's my understanding that, yeah, so you just said that you are in the education program, and that's where you're at, too, Veronica. Is that correct? Uh, Yes. So talking about Milwaukee, I came to Milwaukee in 2007, and then I taught in high schools and elementary schools. 
And then last year, I became a full-time PhD student also at the College of Ed, the same as Saul, in the Educational Policy and Leadership Department. What, and, and I'll just throw this general question out there for, for both of you, um, but I would like to, to, before we get into your background of activism and how you discovered Curdle and became a, uh, a part of the team here, I would like to know more about your, your educational journey. I know, Saul, you, you kind of touched on it, you know, being in the Marquette pipeline, as you called it, and, and everything. But what drove the two of you to decide to not only pursue graduate ed education, but to do so specifically in the Department of Education as educators? So for me, I think it all started with McNair. So I did the McNair Scholars Program through the EOP department here at Marquette. And that was like eye-opening for me because we went and toured a bunch of schools in the East Coast, a bunch of schools in Chicago. And basically as a sophomore, junior, I was surprised to see, you know, what graduate school was. So I thought back then, you're... you're you're telling me that if I can come up with an idea and a thesis, I can literally write about whatever I want. So that was like the big pull for me, you know, like back then I was like, I can write about soccer and how that's like a social dilemma in Latin America. And they're like, yeah, it's perfect. There's a bunch of scholars, you know, writing in Latin America. So I was like, wow, that's amazing. So that's basically how, you know, I knew graduate school was for me because I like to talk and I like to write. And it was a perfect ground for me. And then I was set on Spanish literature as my PhD. And then for me, uh, the master's was going to be the stepping stone for a PhD program into Spanish theater, which was my original plan, contemporary Spanish theater. And I actually was was doing research in Spain already. But during my research, I, I, I found myself not feeling fulfilled. You know, I didn't feel like my calling was, you know, studying Spanish theater. So luckily, through my work at the Office of Institutional Diversity Inclusion at Marquette, I saw that there was a need for Latinx uh, scholars, there was a need for Latinx professors, Latinx administrators. So that's kind of when I knew like, hey, maybe I can't write about, you know, 20th century Catalan theater, but I can definitely help out more here in Milwaukee looking at first-gen issues. So that's kind of how I transitioned to education, you know, from just realizing that Spanish literature wasn't for me at the PhD level and that maybe education was a place for me. Excellent. And fellow McNair scholar, I always like that. Shout out to the McNair programs across the, the nation. So I'm slightly different than Saul's experience. I think what has driven me to continue my education has to be just the curious mind I have. So I remember even before the age of four years old, I remember being fascinated by the idea that you can write something like lines on a paper and then people understand the message. So that's, that was, so I learned to write by copying and I somehow felt that it was a bad thing. So I remember asking my sister, who's four years older than me, to write the word, to, and I asked her to write God in Spanish, so I asked her to write Dios. And then I like went into this little corner and took pen and like, or pencil, I don't remember, but I tried to like write over and I learned to write just by copying, which I thought I was writing, but it's really just copying. And then when I was four, I begged to go to school, but there were, for some reason, I was just put in first grade right away. And that's about as good as my experience got, because after that, elementary and high school was just surrounded by really bad experiences. I can, I 
think of a whole lot more negative experiences in school that I could think of positive experiences in school. And I became a bit of a of a rebel in school. So I was like the defender of the underdog and the and and the spokespeople against teachers and and I remember in high school I requested two teachers be fired. Like I hated I hated both my my entire K-12 education as a student. But when I graduated from high school, I went to work in a what would be called an American school. So in Ecuador, that would be a school that follows the American educational system, whatever that meant. And it was basically for extremely wealthy people, uh, for diplomats. So I was an assistant and I got the job because I was bilingual at the time. So I would go into this school that is walled off with guards at the door. And it was one world. It was like to see how the children were treated. And then I would go into like my real life. And the injustice of especially oppression by class and by ethnicity and race was very evident to me. And it always has been even as a young person. Um, so I had it in my mind at 18 that my dream was to become the minister of education of my country. That's what I wanted to be. But then things happened and I came to the States about a year after that. So education was always in my heart as a way of protecting childhood and youth because I, perhaps because I felt so unprotected in those settings. So I got, I took a long time to finish my undergrad. It took me 10 years to finish my undergrad. I started at a community college and worked one class at a time. I did not like undergrad. I felt completely out of place. I quit every semester. It was a really long process. And once I came to Milwaukee and I started work, working full time with high school youth in the South Side, sort of like that desire to to make schools and classrooms what I wanted them to be, to really pro, not protect curiosity, but also support it, which is what I always had. Right. So then I started my master's at Alverno. And I loved Alverno. I loved their no grade system. I was like, this is what it's about. It's not about competition. And I loved Alverno. Then I went for Montessori certifications. I became a Montessori teacher at the elementary level. Um, and then you can see those themes throughout my life, right? Curiosity, protection of the child. And then my questions kept getting bigger, right? The schools can only do as much as policy allows them to do. So I knew right away I would go for a PhD. I wanted, I have really specific questions I want to answer for myself. And I also wanted to give myself the gift of being a full-time student. I did my undergrad and my master's as a mom, my master's as a single mom, part-time, and I did not want to do that. So I went to all the universities in the area and I spoke with Dr. Elwood Marquette and I felt that that was it. Like, this is the place I need to be in. And I remember telling her, I'm not sure how, but I have to do this full time. I don't want to do it part time. And this is the place where I'm meant to be. So it was a, it was, um, I don't want to call it religious. I, it was very, a very special moment for lack of a better word. Well, I'm glad you're here. So I'm, I'm glad that you uh, had that experience. I, I, you know, I, I find your just both the differences and the similarities in your answer is very striking. So, uh, you know, and I think that if we looked at our graduate student population as a whole on campus, we would see a lot of similar things that you, uh, whether it is you start off 
in one field thinking you're going to do uh, a certain thing such as Spanish theater and realize that while that this is great, you have other questions that you want to answer and that there's these other opportunities and being able to change that or having the mission of changing the classroom experience because you had a bad classroom experience. But both of you speak to the need for representation and also to to protect students. So I was wondering, it, it sounds like that that is not only a guiding principle for your educational goals and your uh, desires towards what you're going to do with your PhD, but also perhaps the core of your activism. Is that a fair statement? I think so. I, I think as for as long as I can remember, I have always had my heart towards groups of people or even animals when i was a child it was the animals right i was like the animal protector it was towards others who seem to be forgotten seem to be oppressed or taken for granted and that might have changed throughout the years from you know dogs in the street as a five-year-old or bullfights that are still legal in ecuador to to later on seeing children working in the streets as a child myself to seeing domestic violence, to seeing then a clear class divide, you know, seeing poverty. Um, I think there's some um, strong Latin American things were happening in Latin America in the 80s as a consequence to the 60s and 70s that heavily influenced what I was seeing, right? So I was seeing an extremely wealthy class and I was seeing that the majority of poor people were indigenous, the majority of poor people were black Ecuadorians, the majority of poor people were people that were like short and sort of kind of looked like me with not the Spanish sounding last name. My last name is not Quichua or indigenous, right? So that was always a focus that I had, which then when I came to the United States and became sort of like, oh, this is what it feels like when you're on the other side, <laughs> when you are held suspect, then my focus was working with with um, Latino students and African-American students. Um, and that was my favorite place to be at. The classroom is by far my favorite place to be at. I would like to echo some of the things that Veronica was saying. I think I remember clearly this just came up visiting my, my aunt in Mexico. She was a teacher. She used to teach at a, at a pueblo, like a little village in the mountains of a central Mexico, Jalisco. So I remember visiting when I was anywhere from eight to 10 years old and looking at how different their classroom looked compared to mine. So that really stuck into my mind. And I feel like that subconsciously is, is, is a driver too. looking at the differences between Mexico, Latin America and the U.S. and, and looking at how it's so different and how that difference is, is so tiny. Right. So I had the privilege to be born here in the U.S. I know a lot of my peers probably don't have that. So like that's something that, you know, is affecting a lot of my peers, a lot of students entering college, entering the country, et cetera, et cetera. And, and going with, with what Veronica said right now with the classroom, I feel like I also feel super comfortable in the classroom. I, I feel comfortable at a university campus, but it wasn't always like that. And I know that for a lot of first gen students, it's it's always a struggle to feel accepted, to feel at home. So I think for me, fighting those feelings of, you know, imposter syndrome, fighting the, the first battle of like, hey, I'm not, I'm not dorming, I'm commuting, or, you know, my parents aren't teachers, aren't doctors, aren't, et cetera, et cetera. That was something that, you know, 
I took and, and I feel like made me stronger and made me advocate advocate stronger for my you know first gen students for my first gen colleagues I think that's a, a big big reason why I'm, I'm pursuing this because I know that the university experience at least here is something that's really transformative you know you can meet people from all over the world and learn really cool things and you know fortunately a lot of students it isn't that they can't get in it's just that you know what does it mean to serve right our our minority students what does it mean to serve our community you know as an institution and I feel like that's an area where you know some institutions aren't doing the best and I would love to to change that a little bit I, I really love what I'm hearing from both of you because yeah I, I as, as a first-gen collegiate student myself I, I completely understand some of the struggles and you know I, and I'm in my home country and I am white so I, I, I don't face any of those those other representation issues or discriminations but just the the hurdles that you can have as a first generation student never mind then being a person of latinx descent or uh, african-american or anything like that and all these pressures that unfortunately uh, our educational system is not always set up to deal with and so hearing you guys wanting to get in there and change it from the inside and the work that you do to for lack of a better term decolonize the classroom really man uh, it makes me very happy to to know the two of you as little as I do and to have this opportunity to work with you at Curdo. So I will give you a space because I, I know that sometimes when I, I use that term decolonizing the classroom, especially with educators, that they have stuff that they want to say about that. So I'll give you some space for that. But then I want to transition into how you first heard about the center and what drew you to want to work with it and, and actually what the, the initiative that the two of you are doing is. So that was a lot of questions. <laughs> One at a time. First, I wanted to follow up with what something Saul just said, and I find it personally rather very, very impressive when when you can start a a career as a scholar really young. I think then that gives you the chance to have many years to to formulate, to discover things, and then to influence back universities. So I think it's it's something that. I tried to inspire in my students who were interested in that, right? There are students who are who have a very curious mind, who have questions and, and who want to get into books and and do things from that angle. And I've always encouraged that. But like Saul said, there's so much more than just being admitted, right? And I had the immigrant experience that I came here and then it was like, I wasn't that much older than my classmates. I was 20 years old when my classmates were 18. And the disconnect was so, I just I just couldn't handle the classroom environment. I couldn't handle the culture of education here. So I think it's it's a beautiful thing to me when I see um, people like Saul with a vision and with the and with the ability and and if I'm wrong, Saul, feel free to correct me. But with the ability to put up pressures, there's certain pressures that society puts in young people, right? Especially when we grow up in an education system within the last 20 years that's focused on the market, right? You are only as good as, as your ability to strengthen the market. In other words, your human value is really um, your income. And, and neither students nor, nor graduate students <laughs> make, have a lot of value in those terms. But I think it's, it's a beautiful thing when a young person has the capacity to sort of 
push back in that pressure and truly follow their mind and their heart, right? These, there is a calling that causes us to push against the pressures of society. So that might be tied right into what you just talked about. To me, decolonizing the classroom, it's, it's a really big word and it can, mean, it can mean many things to many people. To me is, can we, I'm not, I'm not sure how to articulate this, so forgive me for um, taking some seconds. So as a teacher, with my students together, can we not only understand the systems as they are in place now, and what is the purpose for the systems and therefore the perfectly aligned outcomes that those systems have. But can we also dig deep into our, into our collective consciousness and history and reimagine really what it should be like? So not only, not only why it, are systems oppressive towards minorities, women, LGBTQ, ethnicities, et cetera, but also how should it be? And can we have that within my classroom? Can we right now today interact with each other the way we think it should be? Can we learn the way we think it should be? So I think to me, both pieces are important, not only understanding what is going on and why, but also reimagining it, reimagining it, how, how should it be? And how do I, as a teacher, give my students key pieces of information, concepts, and skills that allows that reimagination and protects that reimagination, while at the same time, I don't block it because I'm an adult and I'm fully formed, right? I was fully socialized. So how do I restrain myself? What parts of me need to be sort of held back to protect them, if, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I took a I took a decolonial theory class last semester. Uh, but before I talk about that, you, you mentioned something really important, Veronica, the pressures of being a scholar or a graduate student. I think that's that, that's something really important to highlight. And you know, coming from a, a Hispanic Latinx culture where you know the the male is supposed to be the head of the house, and you know all these notions that you know, are, are carried culturally as, as a man, I feel like that's something that sometimes can limit our future scholars because all of a sudden, like you were saying, your work is economical, is economic, your work is dependent on your salary. It's worth on not what you think, but what you provide and then physical assets. So I feel like that's a, a thing that I grapple with and that I feel like a lot of uh, young Latino male scholars are grappling with, you know, how do I go against this notion of, you know, I should be the one working, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this ties back to the, to the colonial, you know, uh, I agree, I agree with, with what you've been saying. How can we just detach ourselves? And I think that for me, the biggest thing with, with the decolonial aspect or theory of, of it is stating that the colonization of people did not stop when Christopher Columbus met you know, the indigenous tribes. That event had ripple effects that we are associating today. So the effects of colonization and being critical of that, I think for me is, is, is the biggest aspect, knowing that, you know, in 1492, when the three ships came, it wasn't like, that's that. 
again, there's a bunch of stuff that is still affecting the present from that point of time. And, you know, also being able to detach ourselves from the heteronormative, the, the, the religious and the sexual mindsets that Western colonizers were bringing and that they implemented, you know, if you look at Latin America, you know, when it comes to like you know, gender and sex and religion, there's a lot of things that do not fit in with the Western thought, right? So like for me, it's always about being critical about what is being presented. You know, there's always a way to, to kind of say like, hey, maybe that's something that, you know, was brought over by the Western thought or, or the uh, Eurocentric way of looking at things, you know. And, you know, as someone who is Mexican, of Mexican descent, Latin America is, is just the result of colonization. It's a result of, of this mixture. So I feel like, you know, I'm not the only one that's been looking at the origin of Latin America. There's been a lot of poet scholars that look at this issue. So I feel like just being aware of it is, is the least I can do. I think you both bring up really excellent points there, and thank you for that. And, and this is something that Veronica could probably speak to more directly. But when when I think of decolonizing the classroom, of course, I do think about Christopher Columbus and the, the colonial impact and the, the shaping of Latin America. But I also think about U.S. imperialism and just the ways that U.S. foreign policy and the prosecution of drug wars or immigration policy and all these things, especially the terrible immigration policies that we have under the current administration, continue to impact our neighbors. And in America, the, I, I think a, a very large per percentage of the population just has no clue. We have such short sight that even stuff that happened within my lifetime, I'm the same age as Veronica. So our, our policies in the 1980s under Reagan, which were devastating we just walk around, la da 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 da, and have no idea uh, of that impact and how we are. We see these conflicts and and everything that that happen, and we go, oh, look at those places, and not realize that we are one of the reasons that they are destabilized, and that there is this influx of immigration into the country, and that we owe a debt because we are part of that problem. Much of what you say is part of our daily reflections, right? It's part of our our daily experience. If I could put two cents on a book, I'm listening currently to a book that's called Separated by authors whose name, I, first name is Jacob, last name with an S, I can't remember his last name, he's a reporter. So he looks at the idea of family separation and a little bit of the history before Trump and how it played out, how it has played out during the Trump administration. What I have been thinking since a conversation that I had a couple of days ago has been that much of the US international politics from somebody who was born and grew up over there presented an image of the U.S. that is not true to all of the U.S., right? It presents an image. I never wanted to come to the U.S. Let me put it this way. The U.S., the United States of America was the last country you could have ever asked me that I wanted to live in because it was to me very much the modern representation of what Spain did, right? In my 17-year-old in my mind, I never wanted to set foot in the United States, and here I am. Over 25 years later, having to recognize that that image that was given to me, it's a very particular image that only benefits a really small group of people in the United States, right? It benefits white, upper middle, upper class. So when I think of 
people in the United States and my son and I, Alejandro, who's 18, and I were having this conversation. And he told me something really interesting. He told me, you know, when you think of the word American, what do you think of? And I'm like, well, I think of white, right? I think of the missionaries that under whom I grew up. That's what American means to me. Everybody else has to have some sort of adjective to American. But if we're going to default into who American is, it's going to be the white missionary. And the, and the Ecuadorian side of me says, no, American is the whole continent, right? I push back. Alejandro told me something different. He said, you know, that's not what American means to me because that's not my reality. So he grew up in Milwaukee. He went to a school that was extremely diverse, a Montessori school, and then he went to Rufus King. That's about 60-20-20 as far as demographic divisions. So to him, before he moved on to UW-Madison, it'll be interesting to see his perspective now, American meant an extremely diverse place, right? A place where you went to school with Latinos and Blacks and Hmong, and that you learned all, all these different languages. You learned to swear in all these other languages, <laughs> and you learned, you know, you learned K-pop, and you learned to sing in Korean. So his reality of what American is, is not determined by my international perspective. And what is that international perspective? And that is that packaged deal, right? The international politics of the United States, that imperialism of the United States also turns inwards, right? It, it also played in, indoors, but it doesn't show that. I never knew about the Black Panthers when I was in Ecuador. I never knew about First Nations when I was in Ecuador. That was not things that were taught to me. So I think it's, it, it's, a, it's an interesting package, especially if you keep a nation isolated, and then people inside the country do not know what you said. The realities of what this government is doing to other nations and other peoples. So it looks like you're having to say something. No, I, I agree. I mean, I feel like as someone who, who was raised here, uh, I went to a, a middle school, MPS, K through eighth grade here in the South Side, 35th and Greenfield, 35th and Mitchell, I think. And it was 98, 97% Latino. Like everyone spoke Spanish. Like in my class, I was in the, in the Spanish side of, of the programming. So it was like, I just spoke Spanish, you know, and, and, and this notion of American didn't start developing, at least for me, until I was in high school, into market high. So it was a big shift, you know, it was from like 97% Hispanic to like 10% Hispanic or even less. It was 90% white. So for me, that's when the America, the America, you know, as some of my peers used to, you know, call it, that's kind of when the class came. That's when it came, when for me, the American had to come with a dash. You know, so I wasn't just American, I was Mexican-American, you know. That's when the separation, I feel like, started to seep in, at least as, as a, as a Mexican-American in, in, in the U.S., where in middle school, everyone was just amigos. We were just from the neighborhood. We were all from the same part of the city to now you, you're not the same, even though you live a block or a couple blocks away from the school. You know, now I, I, I started to learn about what suburban lifestyle was. I started to learn about what it means to, you know, have all this social capital. So that definitely shifts a, a shifted a bunch of, of my perspective, you know. So when I entered college and a lot of my MPS, people that went to MPS that were from my neighborhood, they had the same shock I had when I entered high school. You know, they entered spaces that were like Rufus King, more diverse than, than Market High. 
or other suburb schools. So for them, I feel like they were going through similar things as I was, you know, the whole culture shock. You know, what do you mean people don't speak Spanish? What do you mean they don't know what the other muertos is? Or, or you know, this, this, I don't want to say basic common sense, but like this openness to culture, which is something that is sometimes a big shock for a lot of our first-gen students. People are sometimes not open uh, because, you know, their experience of what American is, is is super different than what we grew up with. Yeah, I think that that's also uh, another great couple of points from both of you. And I think that's something that's going to, that hopefully will, will start to change over time as we hopefully can continue to be more inclusive and not only the representation in the classroom from professors and teachers through all, all levels, but also open up and recruit more and bring more people from diverse backgrounds into universities and into learning spaces to represent the actual demographic breakdowns of the of America and, and not just reflect the social, economic and cultural relics that still sometimes show up if you look at the demographic breakdowns in higher education or in, in various places. I'd like to think that we are are knocking that wall down and uh, hopefully we are. And I know both of you are doing the work. So again, thank you for that. Curdo, so you, this is both your first semester working with Curdo and I'm very happy that you guys are, are here, as I said earlier. So how did you first hear about the center and what attracted you to want to work with us? I actually started working with Curdo while I was a master's student and I was, I was a GA at the Office of Institutional Diversity and Inclusion. I was helping out with the Leadership and Brotherhood Summit, and I met Dr. Smith uh, through there, and I worked with them. And I just, uh, first of all, I, I fell in love with the idea of Lab, the actual event. I feel like it's one of the best events I've worked with, helped with, just because I feel like a lot of pressure, again, is being set on our, you know, black and brown males to 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 become you know a force of change you know and I feel like that event was a really good catalyst at least for me to see like hey this is something I would love to work with in the long run so that's kind of how I was introduced to Curdo and then in regards to this semester I was recommended for this project we're working on and Veronica you can explain the project a little bit better than me so I was recommended and that's how I ended up here at, at Curdo so I'm, I'm super honored because I've already worked with them before. I know, you know, the great stuff they're doing already. So I'm, I'm just super excited. Um, so I came to Curdo through Rob Smith. So I knew, so Dr. Smith, I knew him not as a Dr. Smith. I knew him as a parent on the school that I taught and I knew his son. So I, I had that, that personal connection from school, from the school perspective. And then last semester, I want to say in the fall, it had to be in the fall. So my first fall semester of the PhD program, I uh, wanted to learn about the history of uh, Latinx teachers here in Milwaukee. Or was that a spring? I don't remember. <laughs> There's a lot of reading and a lot. Of, in one year, you forget what you've done. Um, so I reached out to him because I wanted sort of like a quick interview. Like I wanted him to tell me what he knew about Milwaukee, what connections he had as far as Milwaukee after the 1950s, you know, 1940s, 1950s, like when there was a stronger migration from Latin America and from Texas or Arizona 
for Mexican-American or Chicanos. So we sat down and we talked about it. And then he mentioned Curdo and he mentioned the work with uh, Black and Latino Male uh, Dual Enrollment Hub project. And I thought it was a great, like, I'm like, that sounds really interesting. Like, I would love to work on that. And then I told him, but I have a boss. My boss is Dr. Elwood. <laughs> Oh, you need to talk to my boss about that because at that moment I was assigned to two other professors as a research assistant. So that's how he, Dr. Smith, talked to Dr. Elwood, and uh, and then I was invited to the conversation. What I find most exciting about the project. So the idea of the project is to look at. It has. Uh, different sides to it, right? So I'm going to sort of describe the different sides to it. On the one hand, we want to look at what organizations in Milwaukee serve Black and Latino male youth, right? So there's much that has been said about the need to focus on them as a, as, as a group and that there are very specific things that um, organizations and as a, as a system as a whole, we need to do to ensure their well-being. So on the one hand, we want to know what's being offered and how. On the other hand, and perhaps the underpinning, is that we want to research it, right? What, what works best? Why do we still have, maybe comes from the question of why, why do we still have such low graduation rate between Black, Latin, uh, black and Latino males? Right? Why do we have such low rate of transition to college or a transition to a tech degree or to, or to work? So really looking at Milwaukee, so looking at, at it locally from an aerial view of what is the path that our youth, our um, Black and Latino male youth take, and what places they find great support, what places there may be gaps, and how can we strengthen that path? How can we support their development by identifying gaps and strengthening those gaps. And it's a super exciting project for me because one, I'm all about children and youth. <laughs> and, right? and a big piece has to do with education. It has to do with what happens in schools and it has to do with the relationship with teachers and adults that take care of them. And it has to do with nonprofits that serve them outside of the schools. So on that end, it directly relates to education for some reason, and this is a completely personal, maybe silly to some people thing, I've always raised males. <laughs> Life has given me, so my my first child is not really my child. I took care of my brother. When I was 19, I came to the, to the United States with him. He was nine years old, so I raised my brother. And then I, was, I had two sons, so that's three. <laughs> and everybody in my house, I have a very male-dominated household. So there's... There's something about life always guiding me to figure out how to best serve uh, males, and in this case, specifically focusing in Black and Latino males. If I can add anything to that, I feel like I have a personal connection being a Milwaukee Latino male student that, you know, was educated in the city. So for me, that it's, it's personal, you know. It's personal because a lot of my classmates went to MPS high schools, went to public colleges. Some of them didn't have the opportunity to go to college or high school. So for me, like I was saying, when I, when it came to my middle school experience, a lot of my classmates probably didn't have the opportunity. And, and it was outside of their control, you know, and which is something that I feel like this project is really pushing because these, these are great nonprofits that 
you know, we, we are looking at. These are great programs that are offering a bunch to our, to our black and brown students of, of Milwaukee. And, you know, I have a brother who's 17, 18, so he is applying to colleges right now. He is looking at different universities. And I feel like we had the tremendous privilege of going to a really good high school prep school that, you know, prepared us to go to any college we wanted to. And I feel like for me, I want to help the students that probably didn't get the same chance I did or that might not be able to, you know, go or have the opportunity, you know. So I feel like for me, it's, it's like I want to help out my community at the end of the day. You don't have to go to Market High to, you know, go to a good college. You can go to, you know, it's, 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 up, it's up to a lot, of, a lot of factors. And I feel like this program is, is really looking at the problem from a really good angle. And that's the thing, you know, some other projects look at the look at problems from a different angle that isn't the best way to look at it. I feel like this one is great because we're looking at developing our youth, you know, and developing them professionally, developing them, you know, socially. And that's really going to help them a lot. Milwaukee is a growing city. And I feel my fear is that we're not going to produce local talent, you know, and Milwaukee is is ripe with local talent, with local creative minds, local creative scholars, artists. We are a city that, that can produce, and that's why I love the project, because it's all about, you know, the positive production of, of future role models and then future creators. So that's why I'm so passionate about it. Yes, I do think that this is a fantastic project overall, and the potential there to kind of forestall that brain drain that you're talking about that that need to for the young people of Milwaukee to go off to other places Chicago's the obvious one because it's so close but you know anywhere the Twin Cities or the coast or, or just wherever there's no reason in a city of this size and I come from like a really small place like my hometown only has it had 800 people and I moved away so there's 799 now but you know so living in a city of 600,000 to me this is a city, but when you're close to Chicago and these other things, there can be, and not only the because of the institutional barriers that are here, but because of just the attractiveness of moving off to another city where there are more opportunities, and there's no reason that those are, that there shouldn't be more local opportunities where if you want to move away, you can, but it isn't a necessity. And I think that we will definitely have both of you back on to talk more about this project and what it is that you're doing. Uh, but this is what's meant to be more of a, as an introductory. And I think that I now have a sense, and hopefully the listeners do too, of who both of you are. I have been attempting to, to teach myself a little bit of Spanish, so please bear with me if I mispronounce all of this. But gracias por tu tiempo to, to both of you this morning for coming on. And please, if you have any closing remarks that you would like to say, the floor is yours. It is difficult to be succinct with closing remarks. <laughs> I, I only, I have to be grateful for the opportunities that I have been given. So I want to give a huge shout out to the College of Ed staff, to the professors, to Dr. Elwood, who is my advisor, and every other professor. I really have to say that I have, and this is honestly true, I have never felt as supported in a higher education institution as I have in the last year and a half. So it brings up a lot of emotions because I do believe that the staff at the College of Ed have taken seriously the idea of, of developing everyone and to understanding the needs of students who are not like everybody else, right? They're not white middle class. And I, so I want to give a huge shout out to that.
it is difficult sometimes in life to to want to accomplish change and to say, but these are the things that are wrong and we need to change. And at the same time, hold within our hearts the gratitude and the appreciation we do feel for that which we have been given and for that which has improved. And I have to say, I, I feel deeply grateful to the College of Ed staff, to the professors, and of course to Dr. Smith and everybody at Curta for giving, giving me this opportunity with Saul to work at a city-wide level project. It's super exciting, and I think it will only strengthen, at least I know it will, but I'm sure it will strengthen Saul's um, thesis and his own research too, and my research. Thank you. Gracias. Gracias de todo corazón. First of all, muchas gracias, Ben, uh, por tu tiempo, por tu pasión en este proyecto. Uh, and if you want to practice your Spanish, Veronica and I are, are here. Uh, and in regards to what Veronica said, I also want to echo that sense of gratitude. I, I want to thank the College of Ed for believing in a 23-year-old Southside kid, first gen. If you look at the statistics, I don't feel like I should be here if you look at a lot of statistics. But I'm really thankful for for them and, 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 their, and their confidence confidence in me because it's hard to you know be here sometimes and and it, like Veronica was saying that the sense of comfort and the sense of of I would say I'll say love at, uh, even to that point for education for the community is something that I really appreciate it and you know it, I also get emotional because it's not easy to to go to graduate school right especially if you're first gen or if, if you're not accustomed to this lifestyle you know and, and I want to really thank the College of Vet again for believing in me and, and this project that which I know is going to produce a lot of good and I'm really honored to be here because I know that it's it's going to be it's going to be a good one and again just just thank you Ben thank you Veronica I feel like uh, this is this has been a really good conversation muchas gracias yes thank you both again and thank you for listening to Curto Conversations. Thank you for listening to this episode of Curto Conversations. You can learn more about this podcast and the work being done with our partners by visiting the Center for Urban Research, Teaching, and Outreach website at marquette.edu. You can reach the podcast via email at urbancenter at marquette.edu. Music for this episode is by Ronald E. Johnson, whose music can be found at Choco Geek on Sunday.